0: (laughs) players get played they do want that hey there welcome to hot takedown the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down today is february 2nd 2021 happy groundhog day from the winter wonderland that is new york city six more weeks of winter guys six more weeks of winter I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at Five Thirty Eight. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil.
1: Hey, Sarah. How's it going?
0: Good. You enjoying the snow?
1: Uh, yeah. I went out in it uh, this morning and then instantly regretted that decision. So yeah. that sounds yeah. right. Yeah.
0: And from Los Angeles is Five Thirty Eight contributor Jeff
2: Foster. Any snow there, Hi, to- Sarah? <laughs> uh, there's a little in the mountains. Oh, wow. Well. You know, If you drive up into the top of the mountains, there's snow. Um,
0: So it's been a busy couple of days in sports. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago about how WNBA free agency could be wild. It has not disappointed. Candace Parker is leaving L.A. for Chicago. Chelsea Gray is leaving L.A. for Las Vegas. Uh, We figured the Sparks wouldn't be able to sign everyone, and they have not. And there are still more moves in the works, so there's a lot still to come to talk about, I think. Also, we have to talk about golf really fast, because golf scandals are my favorite scandals. Patrick Reed won the Farmers Insurance Open a day after
2: maybe cheating.
0: I don't know, Jeff. No one knows.
2: No one (laughs) really knows. That's the thing. so complicated.
0: (laughs) You've seen a ball bounce once and become like thoroughly embedded, right?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, he asked someone who wasn't, uh, you know, affiliated with the PGA tour or anything, if that ball had bounced and he got a know that was enough for him. This would not have been a big deal at all. If it wasn't Patrick Reed, because Patrick Reed is got a very long track record of cheating confirmed or allegations of cheating unconfirmed. Um, and seems to be constantly talked about and grumbled about amongst players and media types. Um, so yeah, you know what? It's good for the game. The sport needs villains. I've said this so many times in so many sports. Every sport needs heels, the bad guys. We all grew up on the WWF.
0: I did love that Reed it, it You could tell that, like, you know... None of the announcers were happy about it Nance is furious <laughs> I know, Jim Nance has never been more disappointed I, I felt like he
1: was disappointed most in Most angry me. Jim yeah.
2: Nance has ever been Because of some wonky thing about an embedded ball In a, in a pitch mark
1: Yeah, did he, did he even say hello to his friends at the top of the broadcast? He was just like, I'm too disgusted to even talk That's to you I, yeah.
0: Sunday's broadcast just started with silence Just five minutes of silence <laughs>
1: None of us are friends here.
0: All right. On today's show, we'll preview Super Bowl 55 and the very different paths the Chiefs and the Bucks took to get there. We'll also talk about the two teams that are already starting to make big moves in the offseason, the Rams and the Lions. We'll discuss baseball's continued labor negotiation woes with MLB wanting to push the start of the season back and the Players Association wanting to ensure players get paid for all 162 games. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We're only five days away from Super Bowl 55, in which Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs will defend their title against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the scrappy new quarterback they signed this year. There have been many takes about what will make this game special, most of them having to do with the duel of GOAT quarterbacks in Mahomes and Tom Brady. No one explained the stakes for these two players quite like Tony Romo, who talked about the QB battle on a media conference call. We usually get Neil to do our dramatic readings or or 5e Fox if he's available. But this time, conveniently, Max Kellerman on ESPN's Get Up laid out just how hyped Romo was for this Super Bowl matchup.
2: There's a chance Patrick Mahomes playing this game to climb the ladder. If Mahomes wins, he keeps that door open as far as becoming the GOAT. If Tom Brady wins, I don't know how anyone can top him. Tom Brady is the greatest who has ever walked, and we are in the Super Bowl with the one guy on Earth that most people would agree could possibly one day, 15 years from now, come into that stratosphere. I am telling you, this game will be talked about forever.
0: Does this game really decide the all time GOAT? Is that even remotely possible
2: at this point? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, uh, it, well... What do you mean? Does it determine whether Tom Brady is the all-time GOAT? Because that answer's probably no. Or does it <laughs> determine if Patrick Mahomes is now the GOAT? Because that's a definite no also. Yeah, yeah so, I guess so, it's just... So, no. so, no, so no, We've, we've, we've
1: <laughs> The most I can say for the take is just that uh, there will be people that use the result of this game however it plays out, But especially, I guess, if Mahomes wins as ammunition in an argument about Mahomes relative to Brady in like 10 years or 15 years or whatever. I I think that's sort of the the crux of those. Like it's a weird like we're we're getting so clever with ourselves, so cute with ourselves in in, uh, takery now that we're trying to anticipate the impact of games, not on takes now, but on what takes will be. Like two decades from now.
0: <laughs> I I just like takery actually as a concept. I'm gonna I'm gonna mull that over for a while. That the, is take The
1: Takosphere.
0: Yeah. Well the the idea that Tony Romo said if if Mahomes wins, he keeps that door open. He, Mahomes is Twenty-five years old. I think the door's going to stay open. The
2: door's open.
1: Yeah. Watch Mahomes win like six straight Super Bowls after this, or whatever. (laughs) It's like, oh, is the door open enough for you now? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't just doesn't seem that necessary. Does it? Does this game matter for Brady's legacy? It. It really.
2: I mean, it'd be nice. I I think I thought it was a go before he even won the last Super Bowl. I mean. I think the argument's been over for a while. I mean, I guess the one thing he defeated this year with the lingering arguments that he was just a product of a Belichick system and he should somehow be discredited for that because it's so easy to win a Super Bowl if you play for Bill Belichick, which is clearly I just not asked Cam Newton. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, Turns out that now. Went?
2: So I think that that argument, which was like one counter argument you might see, is has been dismissed even if he throws five interceptions Sunday and you know loses by 40 points and both of I those think. things might happen and that really may happen um I, I don't think it'll matter I mean at all
1: and also like uh, to, to the point about what the outcome of the game says about Brady's legacy or whatever I think that that's really stupid to think that it would have anything to do with it. But we've seen him lose a Super Bowl, arguably with his best numbers in any Super Bowl, as recently as 2017-18 when they lost to the Eagles uh, in that Super Bowl. He had 505 yards, best by him ever in a Super Bowl of the many Super Bowls. And also he had a 115.4 passer rating, also the best uh, of his Super Bowl career. So it's possible even lending like more dumbness to the idea that this has anything, uh, uh, any stakes for his legacy is if he wins, it can only bolster it, and even if he loses it, it might bolster it because he might have a great game in a loss.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's a great. I think that's a great point. I, I think there's also there is something interesting I found in Romo's take about the idea of looking back at a game down the line as being like a a. You know, a cool matchup that you wouldn't necessarily think you would have gotten to see. I mean, theoretically, Tom Brady will retire at some point, though we can't be completely sure about that. But I think we will, you know, we can't see into the future. We don't know how Patrick Mahomes' career is going to turn out. But it would be like, I I think there is a chance that we look back on this as a really cool moment for future goat patrick Mahomes, looking you know playing against against the the goat of at the time i don't think you can really qualify goat like that but i'm gonna just keep doing it because why not
1: yeah well we've been waiting for these like torch passing moments from brady for a long time like people talked about the afc championship game uh two years ago well between mahomes and brady as like well this is brady you know passing the torch onto mahomes and then it's like nope brady's back again And we've seen that over time, too. People even tried, and we'll talk about him in a second, but tried with Jared freaking Goff in the Super Bowl uh, uh, with the Rams. There were people that were like, it's the young guard against the old guard because I think it was like the biggest age discrepancy ever, which I think this is now the biggest age discrepancy ever between quarterbacks um, in a Super Bowl. But there were people that genuinely tried to kind of, like, uh, maybe not a full torch-passing trope, but sort of saying, like, you know, because it's the oldest quarterback and, and one of the youngest that this is, like, the change of a generation or whatever. And it's like, no, Brady won that game. I don't think he was especially great in that game, but they won. And it's just, like, Brady's career resists narratives, I think, like, no other quarterback, I think, in some ways. Yeah,
0: he also like straight up refuses to let go of the torch. Like all the right. everyone in the media is like, the torch it's being passed, and Brady's like, nope, I'm good, got it over here. <laughs> I'm gonna just hold, hold my to torch. This. <laughs> yeah. Um, Neil, you wrote a great piece that's on the site right now about the very different approaches that Kansas City and Tampa Bay took in building their Super Bowl teams. What, what sets them apart?
1: Well, yeah, I think it's really interesting uh, in terms of the contrast, because yes, we do have this matchup of the great quarterbacks, and that's very much a commonality between the two teams, but really a lot of the other factors are different in terms of how long they've been at this level. For instance, Kansas City has been playing at basically a championship level for three seasons now. They didn't win in 2018, but man, it was close. If not for a a few uh, interesting calls late in that game, they could have um, beaten the Patriots and probably would have beaten the Rams in the Super Bowl. And then we'd be talking about a three-peat right now, um, but but they uh, obviously won the championship uh, last year, and they have been playing at the level we'd expect of them. That's different from Tampa Bay, which has famously not been a team with a storied history aside from the 2002 uh, Bucks and, and maybe some of those Tony Dungy teams uh, slightly before that. I mean, this was... You know, in the 70s, they had what was widely regarded as the worst team ever. They're still, you might have people that think of them as wearing those hideous uh, creamsicle uniforms. Uh, they, they, in recent years, have sort of struggled to finish 500, much less make the playoffs. And this snapped a long playoff drought uh, when they made it this year. Uh, And the bulk of their rise to the top has actually happened very recently since the bye week. In week 13, they've sort of taken off and gone on this winning streak and really seem to figure out their full potential Uh, and right now they're almost at the same level as Kansas City in terms of ELO ratings. And if you look at some other stats like point differential for the season, they're actually ahead. I don't know how much I buy that. I think we should discount that week 17 game in which KC rested starters. But it tells you that they've caught up with Kansas City uh, essentially in an extremely short period of time. Uh, And really, uh, you can contrast the, the way that the 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 teams sort of built each other where the Chiefs had Mahomes. Obviously, they had a great uh, offensive talent base that they started from. But in 2018, their defense was pretty bad, and they made a concerted effort ever since then to improve it, and they have improved it. Right now, they're a top 10 defense, if you look at expected points added. And so they sort of had the quarterback, had the explosive offense, and they worked on their weakness on defense to rise them up and and uh, make a complete team. Tampa Bay was the opposite story, where they had a great defense uh, according to expected points last year. And they had an offense that was not very good, very high variance uh, with a lot of interceptions from Jameis Winston and, that was putting their defense in horrible you know field position uh, constantly. And they went from that to one of the most reliable uh, quarterbacks ever in terms of avoiding mistakes, the second half of the NFC title game notwithstanding. And uh, that was sort of a testament to, we always hear about teams that think that they're like a quarterback away from contending. The Buccaneers were a quarterback away from contending, and when they made that change from, from Winston to Brady... And added some other pieces, you know, they added uh, a number of other guys on offense, but mainly it was the big headline change at quarterback that rose their offense up to the to the level near their defense, and they're also one of the most complete teams. So it's sort of an inverted series of, of decisions that were made by the teams in terms of the order in which they they became great, and they've both sort of met at, at this point where both are playing at a championship level. Yeah, but... I- You know, I think like before this season, you know,
2: NFL analysts love to talk about roster talent and and they definitely had plenty of it. So in that respect, uh, I'm not sure anyone's too surprised. I mean, they had it on both sides of the ball, David, Devin White and clear emerging stars on defense and a lot of star power and the skill positions on offense and then just adding Brady. I mean, the big question was, and and I was dubious of this myself was whether it would all work. Cause we've seen this kind of experiment of, of mixing veterans with young emerging players, you know, completely fall flat on its face numerous times. I mean, the jets alone have done this, you know, five or six times in the last few decades um, where you go out and you try to get a bunch of brand names, you know, your Pierre Paul's and your Sue's and your guys who are like, you know, maybe, Past their prime, but use them to sort of fill the holes, and and it doesn't it doesn't often work. And unlike the you know 2015 Broncos and and Manning's you know in the 2016 Super Bowl, but in Manning's last year um, where it was ultra conservative and you know really leaning on the defense and not asking Manning to do much. I mean, this is the opposite. I mean, this is like a very aggressive. Offense that throws downfield pretty much more than anyone. And what that leads to is a lot of interceptions. And uh, we saw that in the NFC Championship. But, but, you know, a lot of those interceptions are just essentially, you know, third down punts when he throws it 40 yards down the field and the other team gets it. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt the team that much. So I think the style in which Brady's playing at this age is, it is another thing which is remarkable he's not a game manager at all
0: i think the thing that's really interesting about the bucks is their movement within the year because they were they were sort of a oh are the bucks going to win the super bowl with brady kind of pick preseason um and then they they actually did start off really well i was looking at our our um prediction dashboard and going into week eight. So after week seven, they were five and two, and we had them at a 12% chance to win the Super Bowl only behind the Chiefs. So hey, we were right back then. And then they lost a bunch of games. <laughs> and then and they dropped very, very heavily in our, in our prediction model. And I think people thought, oh, well, you know, a variety of things were happening to make it so that they weren't winning games. And then they figured it out at the end of the season, which does like sort of speak to when you do bring in those pieces, you have to give them some time and it's probably normally you need to give them a little more than, than a year maybe. And and Brady's a special, a special player, Um, but that's not going to work all the time for every team like the Jets. So the point about uh, a team being one quarterback away, uh, a good quarterback away is interesting given the uh, big news of the weekend, which was a trade between the Los Angeles Rams and Detroit Lions, Matthew Stafford is headed to LA, Jared Goff is going to Detroit. Stafford um, will leave the Lions in exchange for the 2022 and 2023 first round picks of the Rams go to the Lions, and a third round pick in this year's draft. The Rams have not had a first round draft pick since 2016 when they traded up to take Goff at number one, and they won't have a first round again until 2024. Jeff what do you think of that approach to team building?
2: You know, it's interesting. They um, it's kind of I think working. It 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 it's a, it's the you know, the the trend is obviously to get these guys on the the rookie contract and to build around them, but which has put you know, increased the value I think around the league of a first round pick. And they're kind of using that demand um to Uh, go the opposite direction and fill their team with veteran, fill their team with veteran talent. And frankly, you know, their defense was great this year and and really I think the biggest thing keeping them from winning this year was Jared Goff. Um, You know, that that right there with a better quarterback, frankly, with Matt Stafford, I think that might've been the best team in the NFC. Um, And a lot of that is because they've been able to get these guys, you know, trading a pick for Jalen Ramsey, making moves here and there and basically not relying on rookies because rookies honestly tend to be bad. And if you're trying to, you know, or not, you know, at their full potential, you know, it takes a few years and at, at any position. So right now with the, the players they have, they, they, they're going for it. I mean, they're constantly doing this. We, we were saying they were doing this four years ago. Um, they're doubling down and, and going all in on to win a Super Bowl, and they're doing it again. And frankly, it might work. Um, I, I don't think it would work if every team in the league was trying to do it. But by zigging where everyone else is zagging, they've sort of found something, at, at least in terms of roster construction.
1: Yeah, I think in theory, it's, it's a great plan where you sort of look at it and you're like, the Rams were the best defensive team in the league this year. And you're totally right. Goff and that passing attack held them back so you just put in stafford who when healthy in theory has can do a lot more things has a lot better arm better you know uh at reading defenses and just more of a proven quarterback and roll the dice with that i think it does presume that the defense will stay great which i think is the big unanswered question that uh, NFL teams still have. We've talked about this with our our friend Josh Hermsmeyer before, that like this premise around expecting defenses to perform to the levels that they did in a previous season is a little bit flawed because defenses are very unpredictable. They're very random compared with offenses. So any plan that sort of says, okay, our defense is going to stay exactly as great as it was last year, and we're going to put in this quarterback, and then Equals Super Bowl like the Bucks kind of did that like that that ended up working out for them. Their defense got better this year uh, by I think one um, one ranking slot in EPA than it was a year ago but that's probably more the the um the exception and not the rule because we've seen like the patriots and i know they had a ton of people missing but that's also kind of part of the point uh they were terrible on defense much worse they one of the most unimproved defensive teams in the league and we've seen other cases where you have a strong defensive team and it regresses to the mean say from like first in the league to like 10th or 12th or something like that it's still above average but then all of a sudden it's like well how good is Matthew Stafford gonna have to be at you know the age that he is with the injury track record that he is learning a new system you know kind of coming into it to make up for that and all of a sudden your plan has kind of unraveled or or become a lot more complicated than it seemed on paper when you're making a trade in you know February just
0: look to a team from Minnesota for examples of defensive aggression. there you go <laughs> Though so I want to ask a question that I don't I don't think we've ever asked on this show. What about Jared Goff, <laughs> Neil? How do you think the Lions will will look with him next season? Is this just a, a stopgap measure?
1: I yeah I think it's a stopgap. I mean I, I I don't want to pile on the the punching bag that is Jared Goff. Oh <laughs> you know especially this season it seemed like everybody had takes about how he was like the the one thing that was holding back this otherwise phenomenally talented Rams team I mean I think the the Lions now suddenly it's a little bit like he went from being one of the worst contracts in the league to now it's like uh, kind of a low risk uh proposition yes he has guaranteed money in 2021 and so they're sort of Stuck with him for that year, but that's why they made the trade. They'll give him a look, maybe even pump up his trade value, although I doubt that that would happen in um, uh, with the supporting cast they have in Detroit. And after that, I mean, they can really, because all the, the signing bonus money accelerated onto the Rams cap when they traded, uh, because that's how NFL uh, salary cap uh, works when it comes to trades. They sort of can do whatever they want with him down the line, and they're not committed to him really long term, and they can, you know, draft a quarterback and, uh, and and do their whole rebuild, which I think is like, ultimately, this is just a rebuild, and now, you know, for them. And now they
0: have a bunch of future picks.
1: And they have a bunch of yeah. picks, right. Yeah, it feels, it feels
2: temporary. Um, I, I feel like they're going to be drafting a quarterback in a couple of years next year
0: maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean they might this year depending but um i don't know the the lions had a great um stretch of always going either nine and seven or seven and nine so maybe maybe they can get back to seven and nine under jared goff here's hoping
2: or 0 and 16 maybe they can get back to 16. that was that was also fun
1: (laughs) the spirit of
2: 2008 it's just it's just amazing and hilarious to me that they used they gave up a first round pick to get golf and then gave up two first round picks to get rid of (laughs) golf you would think you would think just hearing that alone coming at it blind you would think this is a terribly terribly run franchise (laughs) and yet um and yet here we are i'm saying great move (laughs) yeah
0: All right, we'll see what happens with that and other quarterback trades, as as well as who wins the Super Bowl over the weekend. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back to talk about baseball, kind of. (music) On Friday, Major League Baseball put a proposal before its Players Association to delay the start of the baseball season from April 1st to April 29th and shorten the season from 162 to 154 games. The proposal also would have delayed the start of spring training, which actually is supposed to open in about two weeks, back to March 22nd. This proposal was offered in the name of COVID-19 safety, given that the spring training homes of Arizona and Florida are hotspots for the coronavirus at the moment, and a delay would allow more time for vaccine distribution. Pushing the season may have also allowed owners more opportunities to get fans back in the stands and recoup some gate receipts. Not that we have any idea how much of a loss most teams took last year because that would involve being able to see their books. The league's proposal also would have brought back the Universal designated hitter, as well as an expanded playoff. But on Monday, the Players Association rejected the proposal and the season will be played under the previously agreed upon rules, which is to say it will just be played as scheduled. So it's another year, another round of tense negotiations between the owners and the players. Rich Eisen on The Rich Eisen Show had a message for both the league and the Players Association.
2: Let me just say this right here, right now. To Major League Baseball and its Players Association, I don't want to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Three words. Figure it out. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You know what I don't want to hear? It from them. That's it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear the arguing, the bickering, the this, the that. The, 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 Already got that last year. Yeah. We only got we got sixty some odd games because of their nonsense last year. Yeah, you're right. And I know it's dollars and cents, and there but for the grace of sports gods go any league. I get it. I don't want to hear it. And I think I speak on behalf of all sports fans. Figure it out. I don't want to hear from you until that happens. <laughs>
0: So with the rejection of MLB's proposal, it it kind of feels like they have figured it out, though not in a very final kind of way. And it, it definitely definitely feels like more shoes could drop. But Neil, do you agree with Rich Eisen that baseball's machinations are are wasting everyone's patience or are there real issues here that that feel important to debate?
1: Well, I think I can understand where he's coming from when it comes to the the patience aspect of it because it does feel... Ridiculous that we've seen. This is like the second pandemic season we're seeing playing out. A full season. I mean, you know, if we consider last year a full season playing out for baseball, and we're seeing other teams either try to like finish their first pandemic season or sort of play, you know, beyond just playing the playoffs at the end of last year, and it and seems like those leagues have figured it out. And for baseball, it's like your guys are. This should be old hat to you. You figured out how to do this. Why are we arguing about this still? Um, But I do feel like that attitude of just sort of like shut up and figure it out is always sort of pro-owner, anti-player like we've seen. Uh, I mean, I think most many fans tend to be that way anyway, where they're just like, shut up and play. You're making X number of million dollars. You know, we're, we're annoyed with even having to hear about this. And I think it was clear from what Major League Baseball was trying to do is that they were trying to weasel their way into trying to you know, shorten the season, not just for, from a health perspective, but also to potentially cancel games, to avoid paying players their full season salaries. And that was the main reason why the Players Association rejected the proposal was that they had a lot of suspicions because it wasn't guaranteed in the language. They, they felt like there were loopholes in there that would give Rob Manfred the power to kind of unilaterally shorten the season and reduce the amount of money that the players make under the guise of safety or whatever kind of thing that they want to do. Uh, and, and there was something that didn't smell right to the to the Players Association. And I don't blame them, especially like Major League Baseball had a ton of time to float this proposal uh, for, you know, throughout the offseason – the big argument around, you know, whenever it was June, July, uh, about how they would start the season and how long it would be stemmed from unclear language in a uh, agreement that was made in, I think, March that was kind of hastily put together that we applauded at the time. We we're like, oh, it's so good to see the Players Association and the owners come together. At this time of extreme crisis, with with the COVID pandemic just starting, uh, you know, it was a bipartisan agreement. And then it's like, yeah, it turns out it wasn't that bipartisan, and there were a lot of like shady loopholes in there that the um, the Rob Manford tried to use as the summer went on to uh, potentially get the player, you know, p- get out of paying the players their full salaries. So uh, they were rightly skeptical of another. Hey, here's an agreement that uh, you you have a week or less to respond type of situation. And that's ultimately, I think, why they rejected it.
0: Well, and the the players' objections, the players' stated objections to the delayed season ha- have to do with, like, one, it's really late in the timeline. For players who are working themselves back into shape, like camps open in two weeks, pitchers and catchers report in two weeks. So that is too late for for pitchers who are getting their arms back in shape. Etc. To ramp that down, they say. Then they also worried that the league proposal would give Manfred expanded powers. Jeff, how valid are those two concerns?
2: I, I think it, I think the second one is probably the bigger concern. Uh, the timeline thing. I mean, it it's not like they're you know moving the schedule up to March first or something. I mean, I understand that with pitchers, their arm needs to be in a certain place and, you know, you got to ramp up your throwing, but they are getting more time. So it, it doesn't quite check to me. Um, the second one I think is important. They don't want Manford to have any power. I mean, this has become such a toxic relationship and there's just no trust whatsoever that to give him unilateral authority to theoretically just, you know, halt the season and, cancel games. And then maybe that affects pay and whether they have to go to a prorated pay. I mean, they don't want to give him any of that. Um, so it, it really, to me, is just, a, it's become a pretty epic power struggle and they're not willing to, there's no trust whatsoever. And when you have no trust, I mean, you're not going to give the commissioner more power um, than, than they think he deserves. And, you know, I think on the COVID front, they're, they're like, you know, we're adults we've been living with this for like everyone else for almost a year and we played a season already and uh you know we'll be fine so don't don't do anything for our benefit which you know maybe that's misguided but that's where they are right now
0: I don't think the owners actually care at all about fans of the the safety of the players I think they care about it being safe enough in a community for people to pay to come to games I think that's the owners that's true like the end-all be-all and that's you know we're not there yet and i mean i think everyone hopes we get there during the season but if we wait until then we might not have baseball at all this year and again that's not really what's being discovered discussed so the other the other thing that was interesting to me in this um in this proposal was that well or in the rejection of the proposal the players are exposed are opposed to the expanded playoffs not on baseball grounds like i am (laughs) But on team construction grounds, that teams would be incentivized to spend less if they don't need as many wins to make the playoffs. I I admit that I had not thought of that wrinkle at all. I had not thought that um, that teams might owners might use that to their advantage.
2: Anyone can make the playoffs. We don't need to spend any money. Let's just try it with these guys.
0: Right. I mean, do you think that that's how owners would respond to expanded playoffs?
1: I mean, it's not not how they would respond, <laughs> <laughs> right, given given everything we know about them. I mean, I think in some ways we know that the expanded playoffs are like this massive cash cow to the owners because they can sell it to the networks. It's another, ra- you know, more playoff games equals more money and the players aren't even necessarily being paid for that they they get playoff bonuses for going deep into the the playoffs but aside from that it's not like it's like you know added onto their salary prorated so that's i think why that's become such a sticking point uh, I, they they clearly don't feel like that trade off is enough uh, to justify getting the expanded playoffs, and I do think yeah uh, uh, some part of it at least is a wariness over if they make that the norm going forward. We've seen already that the market for middle class free agents has been depressed so much over the years uh, uh, just through the forces of uh, we talked about this on the show before the influence of sabermetrics and a more cognizant uh, knowledge of the aging curve and uh, more knowledge of, you know, trying to extract uh, performance out of players who are on their arbitration or pre arbitration contracts and all of this, like those forces are already squeezing, you know, a a lot of the majority of free agents, frankly, um, especially outside the big names. And then you sort of have the, the lack of a motivation to add another player that gets you over the top with the knowledge that in the playoffs, You know any team as long as you make it, you can pretty much win. I mean, you might even see different team constructions where it's like, I'm going to focus on starting pitching uh, just for the for the sake of having starters that I can throw at teams in the playoffs, and I don't really care about the rest of the team. Just get me to you know eighty four wins or whatever it is. I mean, we saw a below five hundred team. It might be seventy nine wins.
2: Yeah, because you would think. I mean, this sort of there's one way to look at it. Like more chances to make the playoffs will benefit the players. Cause you know, you'll be able to have a better shot at winning a world series, which is performing on a national stage and could lead to more money, which could lead to more endorsements and that kind of thing. I mean, there is a way to view it as a good thing for the players, but I think, you know, they don't want to just kind of give away what is going to be one of their big bargaining chips when they go negotiate a CBA, which is the expanded playoffs. Cause they know the owners want that, you know, For the TV and the potential gate, and to just you know, kind of let it happen two years in a row and establish it as from a fan's eye as as the norm, um, going into negotiations, it does seem smart to take that off. I know that the DH is kind of a carrot for the players, but I maybe they just didn't deem those equal, and also I don't know if the owners really care so much about DH one way or another. The owners
0: want the DH too, so. There's no reason. That's the thing. It's
2: like that's not like they're not giving up anything by the DH. So it's kind of a we they're not really equal bargaining chips. So it it kind of makes sense that they would um, take that stance, regardless if that free agent speculation is true. As you said, Neil, I think that sort of decline of spending on age 30 and older players is part of another factor. Other factors rather than the size of the playoff field.
0: Yeah. Uh, And Jeff, you alluded there to the the CBA. So if these two pandemic seasons weren't enough of a mess, the baseball's collective bargaining agreement is up in December. Based on how discussions have gone for last season and this season, Jeff, what, what do you think the likelihood is that we'll see a strike?
2: I would say very likely, if I had to guess. As I said, these sides do not trust each other. To an extreme extent, I mean, there was a uh, a release that came out from the Cactus League a- asking to delay this season because of safety. And, and the union was basically accusing accusing MLB of getting that leaked, um, you know, to help them with this negotiation on when to start the season. I mean, there's no trust whatsoever. It, to use baseball terms, these are two teams in a in a beanball war at the moment. I think they're very far away. I think there's a lot changing in the game. I think there's a lot that's unknown about the economics of the game. And I think, you know, the, the players don't trust the owners, you know, when they say they're losing this amount of money and instead they think they're getting ripped off. And I, there's just a bunch of challenges to overcome. And we've seen this in all. It's Look, it's negotiating these things in any sport is hard. But when these two sides have, you know, almost no relationship, can't see eye to eye and actually actively distrust the other one, it's it has all the ingredients for a strike here.
0: And, and I think that's what the Rich eyes and take. It, it, to me, it's not it, it's it's in anticipation of the next big problem. And that's not a great place to be for people who love that this sport. Um, something pretty dramatic is going to have to happen for these sides to come to terms, it feels like. Um, and you compare that to a league like the NBA, which obviously still has, you know, it's not like there are no problems. There are certainly problems there, but there's a level of trust between the players and the commissioner's office. That we don't see in baseball And and frankly I don't think there's trust between the fans And the commissioner's office So that's a huge problem And I don't know how to fix that
1: Yeah and I do wonder whether The the low uh, approval rating Of Rob Manfred <laughs> I'm assuming it's low I don't have the actual track number it. But I can't imagine Let's, let's add that yeah, track we should, it
0: to their website
1: <laughs> Well yeah now that Trump's out of <laughs> yeah. office We need to track the uh, someone else who's really unpopular So maybe add Rob Manfred um, But uh, you know maybe that changes The usual dynamic where usually the, the fans side sort of reflexively with the owners and, and against the players. But when the owners are fronted by Mr. Championship Trophy as uh, just a piece of metal, Rob Manfred. You know, uh, maybe that does change the dynamic, but I do also think that you know the COVID pandemic really um, exposed all of the existing uh, arguments between the two sides and just kind of widened the gap between them. But also just made clear how how deep the the distrust that, like you guys said, but and also just the disagreement about where the the sport should be going, even around things like. Should the players have uh, a percentage of their revenue? Uh, should they, should their salaries be tied to a percentage of league revenue and have that go up when the when the league is in good times and have it go down when the league is in bad times? And the ripple effects of this, you know, the the seasons without fans and all the other revenue losses are going to be felt for years and years and years uh, across all of sports, but I think baseball in particular, because we've noted how dependent it is on gate receipts and, and revenue from fans being there. So I think it's just this perfect recipe for, as you said, Jeff, for a lockout or a strike or something like that, where it's like all these forces are coming together and they're on top of the the distrust and sort of the personal animus. I mean, it really feels like there is a degree of personal distaste between um, Tony Clark and Rob Manfred and, I I don't know what will kind of get them to the table and hammer out all those things before a work stoppage would happen.
2: I will say, though, uh, I think what happened in 2020 kind of proved that a short season is possible and can go with relatively without a hitch. So I do think that opens up the, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I haven't given up hope that there will be a strike. I think there definitely will be a labor stoppage. I, I, because I think it's gonna take time, but I, I could see them like doing a you know, kinda of mini season in a strike year, um, like we've seen, you know, obvious other leagues do in the past too.
0: I <laughs> like we're just like no, there's definitely gonna be a strike. Maybe we'll get a season still, but there's definitely yeah, maybe we'll happen. get <laughs> half a season. We're
2: gonna <laughs> okay
1: get sixty half a games we were on record last year as being like that 60 game season was kind of yeah, cool. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if it was the novelty. I don't know if we were starved for baseball. Maybe we got lucky that like a totally random team or the Astros uh, <laughs> didn't win. But um, it, it just, it was like, oh, this was actually kind of cool. There was like a cool sense of urgency throughout the season that, hey, why not two, two seasons in a, in a calendar year? Have Ooh. a, have a spring season. Like there used games, to be two World games, games, Series champions. Yeah. Right and then crown a world series champion again and it'll be really confusing like when the australian open had oh, yeah. two australian opens in the same
0: well year. if you loved uh, a short season if you loved 2020 baseball just get ready for 2022 <laughs> you're you'll be in luck all right well we'll see how that develops over the course of this year for now we're gonna take a break and then we'll be back for our rabbit hole of the week At 5:38, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories; some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents—the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, I have a story for you guys. So, this might be a little less rabbit hole and a little more "get off my ice." So, so bear with me. Uh, Women's hockey. Women's hockey has gone through a tremendous amount of upheaval over the past few years. Leagues have collapsed, new ones have started, organizations competing for players and sponsors. And then came a pandemic, of course, putting every sport on hold. The National Women's Hockey League cut its season short last year by, by, just, by just one game, but it was sort of an important game, the Isabel Cup Final, which had been scheduled for March 13th. The league was back this year though with a new commissioner and an expansion team in Toronto and playing a 2 week season in a bubble in Lake Placid, New York. Despite all the obstacles, sponsorships were up this year, as writer Mercer and Jemmy reported for 538, including the league's new major partnership with Discover Card. Things were going as well as could be expected for a sport being played in a pandemic for about 2 days. So this is the point in my story where Barstool takes a leading role. The CEO of Barstool Sports, Erica Nardini, is a hockey fan. She has said before that she's been interested in buying a team in the NWHL, and she had a couple of players from the Metropolitan Riveters on her podcast. Some people around the NWHL, notably journalists who cover it, called out the league for associating with Barstool given its Antipathy for women's sports, it's treatment of women in general, it's homophobia, it's overt racism, etc. In response to those mean tweets, I guess, Erica Nardini posted a video calling out her critics by name and by social media handle. Her message was that the NWHL can't afford to be choosy, basically in who it associates with, and that she doesn't know why her effort to promote the league would be such a bad thing, essentially choosing to ignore the truths about her own brand. And then, true to form... Many Barstool fans bombarded those journalists Nardini had called out, along with players who tweeted criticism of Barstool. Barstool founder Dave Portnoy had to get in on the nonsense too, of course, saying that Nardini was probably the number one supporter of a league called the National Women's Hockey League. You probably didn't know it existed. She's been as involved and as instrumental as any person in this league getting it attention. You'd think a league that barely anyone knows about would welcome that. Look, it's not like I was expecting a woman whose podcast is called Token CEO to be all that committed to actual female empowerment, but I do expect her to have a clear eyed view of what her brand is and how constantly dismissive it is of women's sports and women's sports leagues from the top down. I'm sure Nardini really does love hockey, but as I saw someone else say on Twitter, if you really want to support something, you don't publicly tear it down. This was all so frustrating, not just because of the continued demeaning of a women's sports league. These women who are playing through a pandemic for not enough money yet to live on full time, who play for the love of the sport, they deserve attention for the sport. And there has been some really excellent hockey played in that bubble. The women really deserve to be able to just focus on that. Of course, beyond the barstool nonsense is COVID-19, and that's been arguably the bigger problem for the NWHL. Two teams have pulled out of the bubble, the Riveters and the Connecticut Whale, leaving four teams left to compete for the Isabel Cup. Friend of the site Alyssa Longmuir has been modeling this season, gives the Toronto Six the best odds at winning it all at 53%. Toronto takes on the Buffalo Buttes in one Thursday semifinal, and the other will see the Minnesota Whitecaps facing the Boston Pride. The final will be on Friday and all three of those playoff games will be broadcast on the NBC Sports Network, which is very exciting and and a cool new thing for the league. So maybe for at least a couple of games there, the focus on the league can be where where it really belongs on the ice
1: as a fan of hockey and uh, someone who hates social media (laughs) drama. I would welcome that.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it was really frustrating to see the journalists who have worked so hard to cover the sport and like doing so, a lot of them doing so independently or, you know, freelancing for various different outlets um, get called out so publicly and for, for saying, hey, maybe the league needs to be careful about who it associates with, which, I mean, that's true. Leagues do need to be careful about who
2: they associate with. You know what I think that league should do? lean more into canada one canadian team is not enough canada women's hockey is obviously the gold standard for gold medals they should just go to every city that doesn't have an nhl team you know quebec city halifax saskatoon there you go go to all of them give them all teams it'll be huge hit that's my
1: prediction and covid wouldn't be as much of a problem yeah, because canada has they, done a much better job of containing it.
2: The, the Canadian the way the division in the NHL that's all Canadian is thriving. Those you know the ratings are like off the charts. I, I don't I actually think that might stay for good. I think basically canada should remove hockey from uh the United States of America and just sort of take back what is theirs.
0: No, I mean, I think we can all agree that the United States is the problem for <laughs> sure. Um, no, and and what you're talking about, Jeff, is sort of the way, if what the um, the former Canadian Women's Hockey League was. And when it shut down, there was sort of this idea that the NWHL would kind of absorb those teams. But then there was another league that, that came up that was really player-focused. So there's, a, I mean, I think there's a lot of, at some point, I'm hoping that the, the leagues sort of unify and that there can be more, just more teams in general and more opportunities for these women to play. That's been sort of what's been so interesting. All of this other drama that's been going on for years and it's sort of... It kind of went away this year with all the sponsors really being like, yeah, let's support both of the two current leagues of of women's hockey. Um, But then the drama needed to come back just in a slightly different form.
2: (laughs) That seems like and it makes sense why they would, you know, I guess with that already in existence, but also going to sort of the big money centers, you know, whether that's Toronto, Boston, New York, or I guess New Jersey. But that's I think in terms of expansion, that seems to be a direction to go. Go north, go
1: up. <laughs> but yeah, it was like you know what's missing from this season that that's been in place the past few years—self-defeating yeah, drama. That's what we. need. That's what that's we need. What,
0: that's, what'll, <laughs> that's what'll make this feel more real. <laughs> um, yeah. So the the semifinals again are on uh, Thursday night, and the finals on Friday night should be um, should be exciting to watch and and see some great hockey being played.
1: I'm such an avid NBC Sports Network uh, viewer anyway. I was like legit, uh, you know, unhappy about that news that it was uh, shutting down at the end of, I guess, the year, whenever it is, that um, you know I'll be watching.
0: All right, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Mallon. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.